If you have your Bible, would you please open up to the book of Galatians? And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'll share the passage on the screen. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, would you download a Bible app real quick so that you can follow along with us? And I would love to encourage you just to make it a regular practice to bring your Bible with you to church Sunday after Sunday. Galatians chapter 5 is uh, our passage today. Warnings, though never fun, can be a huge blessing. Once upon a winter in Kansas, one of my kids ran into the house and said, Dad, there are some boys walking on the ice at the pond. Uh, We lived one house over from a neighborhood pond. And what you need to know is that Kansas ice is not the same as Massachusetts ice. And every winter we would hear stories of kids who have fallen through ice and horror ensued. So I ran outside and I see three boys, maybe about 10 years old, on the ice. And they're shimmying out. Two are closer to shore. One was a little further out. And this pond got really deep really fast. And so I took a deep breath from my toes all the way up. And in my angriest, deepest, loudest dad voice... I yelled, get off the ice. Have you lost your minds? If you fall in, you will die. Do not ever let me see you on this ice again. They scurried, and then they got off the ice, and they went away. They didn't say, thanks, Mr. Busby, or anything. They just split. Now, there's a reason why I didn't ask politely. There's a reason why I wanted to put the fear of Busby in them. It was because I don't want them to die. That ice is really thin. It's not strong enough to support a person. And if they fell in just a few feet from shore, they would be in serious trouble really, really fast. My yelling, my abrasive warning was actually a a show of concern and care for them, even though I didn't know them. I didn't want bad stories to come out of our neighborhood. This morning... Paul gives us warnings. He loves the Galatians. He loves his readers. And since his Galatian Christian brothers and sisters are considering abandoning faith in Christ in favor of the Mosaic law, Paul tells them, you are on thin ice. See what I did there? Pretty good. At the end of... Chapter 4, Paul had admonished his readers to stand firm in their faith in Christ. But now, as we step into chapter 5, he gives a series of warnings that are God's gracious protection for us. These are not just random warnings, little hobby horses of Paul's. Rather, the Galatians hear warnings that are related to their temptation to abandon Christ and embrace the law. The Galatians learned in this passage that abandoning Christ leads to irreversible spiritual self-destruction. Not only did the Galatians need these warnings, you and I need these warnings as well. These warnings may find us in varying degrees of danger. Maybe by God's grace today, you're going to look at this danger from afar. You're in a safe place. But still, the warnings are valid Invaluable for your faith. It could be that these warnings find you in the midst of real danger, far from the safety of shore. 
But even in that place of peril, God in His grace gives this warning to swoop in, to lift you up, to put you on solid ground, and to give you a fresh start. My purpose today is to warn you of dangers that can lead to spiritual self-destruction, not just to give the warning, but also to show you a way out of the danger. That's what Paul gives us in Galatians 5, 2 through 15, three warnings to keep us from spiritual self-destruction. I want you to follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you. If you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. In this section are three very distinct warnings. Warnings for people of faith to keep us from shipwrecking our faith. So let me show you those warnings this morning. The first warning is this. Don't commit apostasy. Big, blaring, red lights. Christian, do not commit apostasy. Now, When Paul begins this section of warnings, he does so with the Mosaic Law in view. We never get far away from that core argument. And you're very familiar with this at this point, that the Judaizers, the false teachers, were telling the Galatian churches, you can really be saved if you believe in Jesus and keep the Mosaic Law. And so Paul's attention goes there, and he wants to add as much weight as he can what he's about to say. That's why he starts the way he does in verse 2. He says, take note, I, Paul. It's a literary way of grabbing the reader by the cheeks and saying, look in my eyes. You have got to hear what I'm about to tell you right now. And so Paul, again, goes on the attack against keeping the Mosaic Law as a way of justifying oneself. In verse 2, he tells the Galatian Christians, if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he's obligated to do the entire law. So if the Galatians think they can just keep one little part of the law, oh, we'll just cut our flesh and we'll believe in Jesus, and you know, we're just covering our bases, just want to make sure. Paul says, no, you can't have it that way. 
You're either all of the law or all of grace. It can't be both. You cannot say, I trust in Christ for my salvation and acknowledge that I can't save myself and then turn right around and say, no, but I'm going to cut my flesh and thereby attempt to save myself. You can't do both of those things at the same time. It's one or the other. And what we know from our study of Galatians is that keeping the law has never made anyone righteous. You can't just keep one law and say that'll be good enough. Paul says if you pick up one, you're going to pick up all of them. And guess what? You can't do that. No one ever has. No one is built to keep the law. And that's not the purpose of the law. The law doesn't make people righteous. The law reveals us to be lawbreakers, to be sinners against God. If, if, the, if the Galatians have added anything to their faith in Christ, Paul makes it clear, then you have lost Christ. Look at verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Paul's warning is clear. If you turn from Christ to reliance on the law, then you've abandoned Jesus and His grace entirely. Paul is describing a concept known as apostasy. It's important that you and I understand what apostasy is and is not. So let me give you a simple definition of apostasy, one that I think might help with your understanding and my understanding. Here's a definition of apostasy, and it's on the screen. Apostasy is the act of decisively turning away from Christ. An apostate is a person who once claimed to be a Christian, but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. When discussions of apostasy come up, I find it common that so many Christians, uh, we respond in fear. Fear of, what if I'm actually an apostate, but what if I, I I struggle with sin, I'm not perfect, I've got shortcomings, maybe I'm not really a Christian at all, I'm just a pretender. So I want to make sure we understand these definitions really, really clearly. Uh, apostasy is not something that happens by accident. It, it is a decisive turning away from Christ. One does not stumble into apostasy, one chooses apostasy. And that's what Paul's making clear here. If you Galatians choose to be circumcised, you're choosing to walk away from Christ altogether. You're saying the cross is not enough to save. I'm going to go my own way. Apostasy and backsliding are two different things. It, to be sure, every Christian is a sinner, but we are repenting sinners. No Christian is perfectly righteous. No Christian gets it all right all the time. And even Paul makes a distinction between apostasy and backsliding here in Galatians. Look at your Bible at chapter 6, verse 1. In chapter 5, he's talked about apostasy. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. That's backsliding. There are seasons in our lives as Christians where our faith is hurt. Our, our spiritual life is a dry desert. We're given over to our appetites. We're making bad choices. But backsliding and apostasy are very different states of being. 
There's a difference between stumbling in our faith and rejecting Christ. Peter stumbled. Judas rejected. Christians know that we're not saved because we're sure of ourselves. We're saved because God is sure of us. Our salvation is held by Him. So does apostasy mean that a person has lost their salvation? This is a really important question, not just some sort of theological rabbit trail to get lost in. It's important that we understand the relationship between apostasy and salvation. See, Scripture tells us over and over of God's preservation of all genuine believers. Meaning we're saved by grace and we are held by grace all the way to our glorification with Him in eternity. And so, Scripture shows us that God holds us. No, Jesus says, no one will take them out of my hands. He holds us all the way through. And so it seems that we have these two seemingly conflicting truths. On the one hand, God doesn't lose anyone who belongs to Him. On the other hand, some people may choose to reject Christ and decisively leave the faith. So does that mean God really holds us? Or does it mean that people can't really leave the faith? Well, what it means is this, that those who commit apostasy demonstrate that they were never truly genuine Christians. Apostasy is evidence that one was never saved to begin with. Let me show you a biblical example of this so you just don't have to take my word for it. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the Apostle John is writing about a group of people who have left the faith. And here's how he describes them. They went out from us, That doesn't just mean they went on a journey, they took off. He means they left our covenant community. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We have examples like this throughout Scripture of people who are enmeshed in the life of the covenant community, but they are not genuine believers, not genuine followers of Christ. So does apostasy mean a person has lost their salvation? The answer is no. Rather, it means that they were never genuinely saved to begin with. Genuine believers cannot lose their salvation. How does apostasy happen? It's a complicated matter. It's not just as simple as someone wakes up one day and decides, "Mm, I hate Jesus now and forever. A lot of factors that lead to this horrific turning away. It might be any number of things. It could be a prolonged lifestyle of sin. It could be apathy towards Christ. It could be... Replacing biblical values with the values of a non-believing world. Also, apostasy can be the result of real damage and suffering. Maybe spiritual abuse. Maybe church has let you down in some way. Maybe as you look at the scope of your life, you think the things that have happened to me are unfair. Therefore, there is no God. It's a complicated factor as to how one steps into apostasy. But how can Christians avoid it altogether? Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul tells us how. He says, For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplished anything. What matters is faith working through love. 
In verse 5, Paul says that true believers maintain, they hold on to their faith in Christ for their righteousness. I'm saved because of Christ, not because of anything else. I'm holding on to that. That's the hope of my righteousness. Now, here's a temptation that's sure to come your way if it hasn't already. Satan will tempt you to look at all of your sinful failures and convince you that you never belonged to Jesus to begin with. You might walk out of here with your fear spiking, your anxiety off the charts, as you think, maybe I'm apostate and I never knew it. Could it be? Because I have all this sin and all these failures and I never accomplish and I'm never as good. When that temptation comes, this is where you confess. Yeah, I'm a spiritual shipwreck. But the hope of my righteousness is in Jesus Christ who has saved me. I'm never going to be perfect, never going to do all that I should be. The good I want to do, I'm not going to do. But Christ is the reason. I don't have fear or anxiety about my eternity. You can combat that temptation by resting in Christ. In verse 6, Paul tells us what matters most in avoiding apostasy is faith working through love. Throughout this whole letter, he's worked hard to separate faith and works. And now here in a brilliant way, he puts them both in the same sentence. Faith working through love. Paul's not describing how we are saved, but he's describing how the saved live. We're saved by faith in Christ, and in His name, we do good works through love. Our future certainty results in present actions. Paul's warning is clear. If if I willfully and decisively turn away from Christ, I am not His child. However, the believer whose faith results in works of love can receive the warning of apostasy without fear. If you are on the brink of leaving it all today. I mean, just because you're in this room doesn't mean you've got it all together spiritually. You just might be on the edge. Do not make these decisions in a silo. Would you call me this week, email me, and let's get together and talk. I want to listen. I want to understand where you've been, how you get to where you are. Look, I'll be up front with you. I've got an agenda. Your hope, rest, rescue, and healing is in Jesus Christ. So call now. Email me. Let's get together or get with someone you know and trust. Do not step towards your spiritual destruction. There is hope and rescue for you in Christ. Paul's first warning, don't commit apostasy. Paul's second warning, don't follow false teachers. Uh, This has been a recurring theme throughout the letter. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on this very point. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because he treats it really wonderfully. Um, But Paul wants to make sure that the that the Galatians understand these Judaizers, these false teachers, that, that they don't really have any power over the Galatians. In verse 8, he points out that their persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. In other words, this message from the false teachers is not from Christ. And in verse 9, he says, hey, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. It seems that during quarantine, a lot of people have taken up bread baking. 
Maybe that's you. I don't know. In the early days of quarantine, I haven't looked lately, but it was hard to find yeast at the grocery store. Everyone's sourdoughing it up and whatnot. And if, if we've got to make our own toilet paper from trees, maybe we've got to make our own bread too. So everyone's just in bunker mentality getting ready. And what did you, what did you learn as you were making bread? You learned that a little bit of yeast is all you need to make a couple of loaves of bread. It doesn't take a lot to have this big impact. Paul says the same is true of anti-Christ lies. It doesn't take a lot to do real damage in your life and in the life of the church. So we've got to be cautious of false teachers. Now, we're not without false teachers today. I would say they come in two very broad categories. One category is the irreligious false teacher. The other would be the religious false teacher. Irreligious false teachers are those who preach adherence to the laws of culture, over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those voices today are many, and they are loud, and they are persuasive. The Christian, do not let the person with the microphone or the angriest person on camera sway you away from your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. We must root ourselves in the gospel so that we respond to cultural moments with the mind, the words, the actions of Jesus Christ. Now for sure, we should listen to our culture. We should find the truth that we need to hear. We should be humble in our engagement. But Christ sets the pace for us in His humble self-sacrifice. But many Christians are swayed by the cultural moment away from Christ. My greater concern, though, is for what I would call religious false teachers. It's people who write or speak in the name of Jesus, but against the gospel. I would identify three prominent types of religious false teachers. One would be the legalistic fundamentalist. They've been around forever. They're in every denomination. They are many, and they are demonic as they add man-made religious laws to the gospel of grace. It is, I think, Judaizers in their purest, most present form, as they say, believe in Christ and keep these rules in order to be saved. These rules are how we know true believers from false believers. It would be rejected outright. Second form of religious false teacher, it comes in the form of political idolatry. Now, to be sure, your faith should inform your political involvement. However, we are in extremely dangerous territory when we say things like, those who belong to my party are Christians, and those who don't belong are not Christian. Paul did not say that our hope of righteousness is in our political affiliation, right? He said our hope of righteousness is in Jesus Christ. So be a Christian who's politically involved, whose faith informs your voting and your Platform. Be that kind of Christian. But friend, be careful that you do not equate your political ideology with saving faith in Jesus Christ. There's going to be a lot of Republicans in hell. There's going to be a lot of Democrats in hell. People wrapped in the American flag going to hell apart from Jesus Christ. Friend, you've got to hear Paul on this point. Reject those false teachers. Third, False teacher I see prominent right now is the one who affirms us in our brokenness and diminishes our need for Christ. It's the writer or speaker who says, you're a mess, that's okay. Jesus is here to say, you're fine the way you are. 
I find these writers to be especially popular among women today. They are very popular female authors and speakers who come with Christian lingo. They don't put Christ in front of their audiences. And listen to me, popularity does not cover a multitude of heresies. Sister, please be cautious about what you read and who you listen to or how you discern what you're reading and who you're listening to. If that speaker writer does not put Christ in front of you for your redemption and for your healing, then that's not a teacher you want to spend time with. We need gospel-speaking teachers and writers. How does Paul feel about these false teachers? In verse 12, he says he wishes they would mutilate themselves. We might find that language crass or malicious, but Paul's motivation is out of love for the Galatian Christians. We would do well to heed Paul's warnings and cut false teachers out of our lives altogether. Don't commit apostasy. Don't follow false teachers. The third warning is this. Don't devour your siblings. Verse 13 through verse 15, he talks about the way we relate to one another as Christians in the family of faith. In verse 13, he says, you're called to be free, brothers and sisters. And that's a true statement, but that statement's so easily perverted. You see, when we think about freedom, we think about our right to do and say whatever we want. But that's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom doesn't set us loose to say and do anything we want. Paul makes that clear. He says, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. That's what Christian freedom is all about. You're set free from sin so that you can serve the people around you in love. You're set free to be a servant. What's the alternative? The alternative, according to verse 15, is we devour each other bite by bite. We just feast on one another as we feed our flesh in our selfishness. But Paul shows us the better way, serving one another in love, loving our neighbor as ourselves. The implications of verse 13 are massive. Just that little line, serve one another through love, can change your life. How many hurting marriages need to conform to that phrase? Serving one another through love. Fellow husbands, would a survey of your life from this past week reveal you to have been serving your wife through love. Sisters who are married, any chance you're using conflict in your relationship as an opportunity for the flesh? Christian teenagers, are you serving members of your household in love? Is your posture towards your family that of someone who serves or of someone who demands to be served? And then verse 14 is the kicker for all of us. Paul says the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why doesn't he say love God first and then love your neighbor? I think maybe it's because he just takes that as a given. He's been pleading the whole time in this letter for us to love God supremely. So I think he just takes it as given. We're going to love God and then the natural overflow of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus referenced this command in his parable of the Good Samaritan. And that parable emphasizes our requirement to love and serve people. 
without concern for their ethnicity, their economic background, or any other label the world might otherwise use to assign value. We see a person, we see someone bearing the image of God, and we are all in with them. And that's what should make us different, South Shore Baptist Church. We have to take a posture of loving servanthood towards one another. We don't want to come in and devour each other. You've been a part of that in church life before? You've seen Christians just go on the attack? Our warfare is against each other? We draw blood in, in ways that are so very unchristlike. Paul says there's a better way. Serve one another in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Beware devouring your siblings. So Christian, today you've heard three warnings from Paul intended to save us from spiritual self-destruction. You've been warned not to commit apostasy, not to follow false teachers, and not to devour your fellow Christians. It's very possible that the timing of these warnings is perfect for you. Did any of those warnings ring loud in your ears? Perhaps you're on the brink of walking away from the faith. Perhaps you've been influenced by false teachers. Perhaps you've been far less than Christ-like towards your fellow believers. What should you do if the warnings set off alarms? Well, God's Word does not leave us without an exit strategy. We don't just need the alarms. We need the correction. Let me show you from the life of Peter what we do in response to these gracious warnings. If ever a life could personify these warnings, it would be the Apostle Peter. At the end of John's Gospel, John 21, Peter the denier has nearly shipwrecked his faith. Now at the point that we find him in John 21, he has seen the resurrected Christ and he has heard the voice of the resurrected Christ, but Peter is still a man unrestored from his sin. Now, if you and I were writing this story, we would have been done with Peter long ago. I'm so glad that our loving, gentle Savior writes our stories. Jesus has a one-on-one breakfast conversation with Peter, and he asks him three times, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes. What an amazing way to address Peter's three denials. And then Jesus tells Peter to shepherd and feed his sheep. And the conversation ends with a two-word command from Jesus to Peter. It's the two words we need. Jesus tells Peter in John 21, 19, follow me. Doesn't he say the same thing to you? Though you've failed, though you're weak, though you're mired in sin, Christ extends this beautiful invitation to you, follow me. Me. In light of the warning of apostasy, you follow Christ by practicing a faith that results in works of love. That's what Paul said in verse 6. I sometimes find that the simple act of caring for someone else can ignite a waning faith. In our service to others, we see the difference the love of Christ makes in a difficult situation. And so a card, a casserole, a lawn mowed, a bill paid, a prayer shared, in these simple acts we are reminded of Christ's love to us that has never failed. In light of the warning against false teachers, you follow Christ by immersing yourself in His words. You'll be amazed at how simply reading the Bible can easily refute even the most popular of false teachers. 
You need those life-giving words on a daily basis. Grant yourself the blessing of a daily audience with the king and get his words in you. And in light of his warning against devouring our brethren, you follow Christ by loving your neighbor as yourself. The cross tells us what Christ-like love for our neighbor looks like. Since Christ laid down his life for us, we do the same for each other. You may owe someone an apology. You may need to resolve some conflict. Pray for someone you've been at odds with. You may need to take, you may need to take the first step. And that's what Christ followers do. The repentance that leads to spiritual vitality is not a repentance of ideas. It's a repentance of actions in pursuit of Christ. It does us no good to merely hear the warnings. We must respond by following Christ in repentance. A few months ago, I swapped vehicles with a friend for the weekend. Her vehicle is much nicer than mine, so I was a bit nervous about driving it. On my first outing in her car, I was going around a curve when all of a sudden... An alarm started to beep repeatedly. I panicked. I hit the brakes. I looked at the dash. It took me some time to figure out what was happening. But I finally realized in this car from the future, whenever you cross over a center line or a shoulder line, an alarm sounds. That alarm feature is a gracious warning. It's warning because I'm driving out of the safety of my lane. I'm putting myself and others in danger. It's gracious because it sounds before destruction occurs. I don't have to heed that warning. But failure to do so will absolutely lead to some sort of destruction. And so it is with Paul's warnings in Galatians 5, 2 through 15. This morning, three alarm bells have sounded. And with each alarm has come the voice of Jesus saying, follow me. Follow me in faith. Follow me in truth. Follow me in love. I want to take a quick moment to speak directly to you if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Earlier in this passage, you heard me read in verse 4 that it's possible to be alienated from Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... Alienation from Him is not a possibility. It is your reality. But you don't have to remain that way. There's good news for you. Your sin alienates you from God. That's true of all people. And there's nothing any of us can do to fix our own brokenness and guilt. But God loves you and has provided the one who can fix it. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is so important because He alone is fully God and fully man. He's not a man chosen by God. He's not the man who became God. He is God who became man, born of a virgin. And since he is the God-man, he lived a sinless life. And he alone is qualified to die for your sins. He's the sacrificial lamb of God, which means he is the perfect and only sacrifice for our sin. He gave his life on the cross, died in your place. And on the cross, he experienced all of God's wrath for your sin. By his blood, he atoned or he paid for your sin. He died on that cross and three days later was resurrected from the dead. Jesus loves you. and He promises to end your alienation from him if you will turn from your sin and trust entirely in Jesus for your salvation. You will be his child forgiven and new for all eternity You can express your repentance from sin and your turn to faith in Christ through a simple prayer on your own today. 
There's no magic words, not a magic prayer for me to give you, not some official form by which it happens. God knows your heart. And when you speak to Him and say yes to Christ, your life is changed forever. If you have questions, I want to talk more about this than when our service is over. I want you to come and grab me and let's talk about how today your life can be made brand new by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these warnings, warnings that we need to hear, warnings we need to heed. I pray for any friends who are on the brink of walking away today from the faith, Lord, that you would swoop in and rescue them. Give them courage and boldness to have the conversation once again and to come humbly to you for help. Father, lead us in the way of truth. Your word is the truth. And Lord, let us love you with all we have that we might also love our neighbors as ourselves. So let us live out our new life. And God, even this morning, would you bring new life to the one who says yes to you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.